Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come? Afterward, by Edith Wharton. Oh, there is one, of course. But you'll never know it. The assertion, laughingly flung out six months earlier in a bright June garden, came back to Mary Boyne with a new perception of its significance. She stood in the December dusk, waiting for the lamps to be brought into the library. The words had been spoken by their friend, Alida Stare, as they sat at tea on her lawn at Pangbourne, in reference to the very house of which the library in question was the central, the pivotal, feature. Mary Boyne and her husband, in quest of a country place in one of the southern or southwestern counties, had, on their arrival in England, carried their problem straight to Alida Stair, who had successfully solved it in her own case, but it was not until they had rejected, almost capriciously, several practical and judicious suggestions that she threw out, Well, there's Ling in Dorsetshire. It belongs to Hugo's cousins, and you can get it for a song. The reason she gave for its being obtainable on these terms, its remoteness from a station, its lack of electric light, hot water pipes and other vulgar necessities, were exactly those pleasing in its flavour with two romantic Americans perversely in search of the economic drawbacks which were associated in their tradition with unusual architectural felicities. I should never believe I was living in an old house unless I was thoroughly uncomfortable, Ned Boyne, the more extravagant of the two, had jocosely insisted. The least hint of convenience would make me think it had been brought out of an exhibition with the pieces numbered and set up again, and they had proceeded to enumerate with humorous precision their various doubts and demands, refusing to believe that the house their cousin recommended was really Tudor, till they learned it had no heating system or that the village church was literally in the grounds, till she assured them of the deplorable uncertainty of the water supply. It's too uncomfortable to be true, Edward Boyne had continued to exult as the avowal of each disadvantage was successively wrung from her. But he had cut short his rhapsody to ask, with a relapse to distrust, And the ghost? You've been concealing from us the fact that there is no ghost. Mary at the moment had laughed with him, yet almost with her laugh, being possessed of several sets of independent perceptions, had been struck by a note of flatness in a leader's answering hilarity. Oh, Dorsetshire's full of ghosts, you know. Yes, yes, but that won't do. I don't want to have to drive ten miles to see somebody else's ghost. I want one of my own on the premises. Is there a ghost at Ling? His rejoinder had made a leader laugh again and it was then that she had flung back, tantalising, Oh, there is one, of course, but you'll never know it. Never know it? Boyne pulled her up. But what in the world constitutes a ghost except the fact of its being known for one? I can't say, but that's the story. That there's a ghost, but that nobody knows it's a ghost. Well, not till afterward, at any rate. Till afterward? not till long, long afterward. But if it's once been identified as an unearthly visitant, why hasn't its signalement been handed down in the family? How has it managed to preserve its incognito? Alida could only shake her head. Don't ask me. 
but it has. And then suddenly, Mary spoke up as if from cavernous depths of divination. Suddenly, long afterwards, one says to oneself, That was it. She was startled at the sepulchral sound with which her question fell on the banter of the other two, and she saw the shadow of the same surprise flit across Alida's pupils. I suppose so. One just has to wait. Oh, hang waiting, Ned broke in. Life's too short for a ghost who can only be enjoyed in retrospect. Can't we do better than that, Mary? But it turned out that in the event they were not destined to, for within three months of their conversation with Mrs. Stair they were settled at Ling, and the life they'd yearned for, to the point of planning it in advance in all its daily details, had actually begun for them. It was to sit in the thick December dusk by just such a wide-hooded fireplace under just such black oak rafters with the sense that beyond the mullioned panes the downs were darkened to a deeper solitude. It was for the ultimate indulgence from such sensations that Mary Boyne, abruptly exiled from New York by her husband's business, had endured for nearly fourteen years the soul-deadening ugliness of a Middle Western town and that Boyne had ground on doggedly at his engineering, till, with a suddenness that still made her blink, the prodigious windfall of the Blue Star Mine had put them at a stroke in possession of life and the leisure to taste it. They had never for a moment meant their new state to be one of idleness, but they meant to give themselves only to harmonious activities. She had her vision of painting and gardening against a background of grey walls, he dreamed of the production of his long-planned book on the economic basis of culture, and with such absorbing work ahead, no existence could be too sequestered. They couldn't get far enough from the world, or plunge deep enough into the past. Dorsetshire had attracted them from the first by an air of remoteness out of all proportion to its geographical position. But to the Boynes, it was one of the ever-recurring wonders of the whole incredibly compressed island, a nest of counties, as they put it, that for the production of its effects so little of a given quality went so far, that so few miles made a distance, and so short a distance a difference. It's that Ned had once enthusiastically explained, that gives such depth to their efforts, such relief to their contrasts, They've been able to lay the butter so thick on every delicious mouthful. The butter had certainly been laid on thick at Ling. The old house hidden under a shoulder of the downs had almost all the finer marks of commerce with a protracted past. The mere fact that it was neither large nor exceptional made it to the Boynes abound the more completely in its special charm. The charm of having been for centuries a deep, dim, reservoir of life. The life had probably not been of the most vivid order, for long periods, no doubt, it had fallen as noiselessly into the past as the quiet drizzle of autumn fell, hour after hour into the fish-pond between the ewes. But these backwaters of existence sometimes breed, in their sluggish depths, strange acuities of emotion, and Mary Boyne had felt from the first time the mysterious stir of intenser memories. The feeling had never been stronger than on this particular afternoon when waiting in the library for the lamps to come, 
she rose from her seat and stood among the shadows of the hearth. Her husband had gone off after luncheon for one of his long tramps on the downs. She had noticed of late that he preferred to go alone, and in the tried security of their personal relations had been driven to conclude that his book was bothering him and that he needed the afternoons to turn over in solitude the problems left from the morning's work. Certainly the book was not going as smoothly as she had thought it would, and there were lines of perplexity between his eyes such as had never been there in his engineering days. He had often then looked fagged to the verge of illness, but the native demon of worry had never branded his brow. Yet the few pages he had so far read to her, the introduction and a summary of the opening chapter, showed a firm hold on his subject and an increasing confidence in his powers. The fact threw her into deeper perplexity, since now that he had done with business and its disturbing contingencies, the one other possible source of anxiety was eliminated, unless it were his health then. But physically he had gained since they had come to Dorsetshire, grown robuster, ruddier and fresher-eyed. It was only within the last week that she had felt in him the undefinable change which made her restless in his absence and as tongue-tied in his presence, as though it were she who had a secret to keep from him. The thought that there was a secret somewhere between them struck her with a sudden rap of wonder, and she looked about her down the long room. Can it be the house? she mused. The room itself might have been full of secrets. They seemed to be piling themselves up as evening fell, like the layers and layers of velvet shadow dropping from the low ceiling, the row of books, the smoke-blurred sculpture of the hearth. Why, of course. The house is haunted, she reflected. The ghost, a leader's imperceptible ghost, after figuring largely in the banter of their first month or two at Ling, had been gradually left aside, as too ineffectual for imaginative use. Mary had, indeed, as became the tenant of a haunted house, made the customary inquiries among her rural neighbours. But, beyond a vague, they do say so, ma'am, the villagers had nothing to impart. The elusive spectre had apparently never had sufficient identity for a legend to crystallise about it, and after a time, the Boynes had set the matter down to their profit and loss account, agreeing that Ling was one of the few houses good enough in itself to dispense with supernatural enhancements. And I suppose, poor ineffectual demon, that's why it beats its beautiful wings in vain in the void, Mary had laughingly concluded. Or rather, Ned answered in the same strain, why, amid so much that's ghostly, it can never affirm its separate existence as THE ghost. And thereupon, their invisible housemate had finally dropped out of their references, which were numerous enough to make them soon unaware of the loss. Now, as she stood on the hearth, the subject of her earlier curiosity revived in her, with a new sense of its meaning a sense gradually acquired through daily contact with the scene of the lurking mystery. It was the house itself, of course, that possessed the ghost-seeing faculty, that communed visually but secretly with its own past. If one could only get into close enough communion with the house, 
one might surprise its secret and acquire the ghost sight on one's own account. Perhaps in his long hours in this very room, where she never trespassed till the afternoon, her husband had acquired it already, and was silently carrying about the weight of whatever it had revealed to him. Mary was too well versed in the code of the spectral world not to know that one could not talk about the ghosts one saw. To do so was almost as great a breach of taste as to name a lady in a club. But this explanation did not really satisfy her. What, after all, except for the fun of the shudder, she reflected, would he really care for any of their old ghosts? And thence she was thrown back once more on the fundamental dilemma. The fact that one's greater or less susceptibility to spectral influences had no particular bearing on the case, since when one did see a ghost at Ling, one did not know it. Not till long afterward, Alida Stair had said. Well, supposing Ned had seen one when they first came, and had known only within the last week what had happened to him. More and more, under the spell of the hour, she threw back her thoughts to the early days of their tenancy but at first only to recall a lively confusion of unpacking, settling, arranging of books and calling to each other from remote corners of the house, as treasure after treasure it revealed itself to them. It was in this particular connection that she presently recalled a certain soft afternoon of the previous October, when passing from the first rapturous flurry of exploration to a detailed inspection of the old house, she had pressed like a novel heroine, a panel that opened on a flight of corkscrew stairs leading to a flat ledge on the roof, the roof which from below seemed to slope away on all sides too abruptly for any but practised feet to scale. The view from this hidden coin was enchanting, and she had flown down to snatch Ned from his papers and give him the freedom of her discovery. She remembered still how, standing at her side, he and then dropped contentedly back to trace the arabesque of yew hedges about the fish pond and the shadow of the cedar on the lawn. And now the other way, he had said, turning her about within his arm, and closely pressed to him, she had absorbed, like some long satisfying draught, the picture of the grey-walled court, the squat lions on the gates and the lime avenue reaching up to the high road under the downs, it was just then, while they gazed and held each other, that she had felt his arms relax and heard a sharp, Hello! that made her turn to glance at him. Distinctly, yes, she now recalled that she had seen, as she glanced, a shadow of anxiety, or of perplexity rather, fall across his face, and following his eyes had beheld the figure of a man, a man in loose greyish clothes, as it appeared to her, who was sauntering down the lime avenue to the court with the doubtful gait of a stranger who seeks his way. Her short-sighted eyes had given her but a blurred impression of slightness and greyishness, with something foreign, or at least unlocal, in the cut of the figure or its dress. But her husband had apparently seen more, seen enough to make him push past her with a hasty, Wait! and dash down the stairs without pausing to give her a hand. A slight tendency to dizziness obliged her, after a provisional clutch at the chimney against which they had been leaning, to follow him first more cautiously, and when she reached the landing, she paused again, 
for a less definite reason, leaning over the banister to strain her eyes through the silence of the brown sun-flecked depths. She lingered there, until somewhere in those depths she heard the closing of a door. Then, mechanically impelled, she went down the shallow flight of steps till she reached the lower hall. The front door stood open on the sunlight of the court, and hall and court were empty. The library door was open too, and after listening in vain for any sound of voices within, she crossed the threshold and found her husband alone, vaguely fingering the papers on his desk. He looked up, as if surprised at her entrance, but the shadow of anxiety had passed from his face, leaving it even, as she fancied, a little brighter and clearer than usual. What was it? Who was it? she asked. Who? he repeated, with the surprise still all on his side. The man we saw coming towards the house. He seemed to reflect. The man? Why? I, I thought I saw Peters. I dashed after him to say a word about the stable drains, but he disappeared before I could get down. Disappeared? But he seemed to be walking so slowly when we saw him. Boyne shrugged his shoulders. Uh, so I thought. But he must have got up steam in the interval. What do you say to our trying a scramble up Meldon Steep before sunset? That was all. At the time, the occurrence had been less than nothing, had indeed been immediately obliterated by the magic of their first vision from Meldon Steep, a height which they had dreamed of climbing ever since they had first seen its bare spine rising above the roof of Ling. Doubtless it was the mere fact of the other incidents having occurred on the very day of their ascent to Meldon that had kept it stored away in the fold of memory from which it now emerged. For in itself it had no mark of the pretentious. At the moment there could have been nothing more natural than that Ned should dash down from the roof in pursuit of dilatory tradesmen. It was the period when they were always on the watch for one or other of the specialists employed about the place, always lying in place for them and rushing out at them with questions, reproaches or reminders. And certainly in the distance the grey figure had looked like Peter's. Yet now, as she reviewed the scene, she felt her husband's explanation of it to have been invalidated by the look of anxiety on his face. Why had the familiar appearance of Peter's made him anxious? Why, above all, if it was of such prime necessity to confer with him on the subject of the stable drains, had the failure to find him produced such a look of relief? Mary could not say that any one of these questions had occurred to her at the time, yet, from the promptness with which they now marshalled themselves at her summons, she had a sense that they must all along have been there waiting their hour. Weary with her thoughts, she moved to the window. The library was now quite dark, and she was surprised to see how much faint light the outer world still held. As she peered out into it across the court, a figure shaped itself far down the perspective of bare limes. It looked a mere blot of deeper grey in the greyness, and for an instant as it moved towards her, her heart thumped to the thought, It's the ghost! She had time in that long instant to feel suddenly that the man of whom, two months earlier, she had had a distant vision from the roof, was now, at his predestined hour, about to reveal himself as not having been Peter's, and her spirit sank under the impending fear of the disclosure. 
but almost with the next tick of the clock, the figure, gaining substance and character, showed itself, even to her weak sight, as her husband's, and she turned to meet him as he entered with the confession of her folly. It's really too absurd, she laughed out, but I never can remember. Remember what? Boyne questioned as they drew together. That when one sees the Ling ghost, one never knows it. Her hand was on his sleeve, and he kept it there, but with no response in his gesture or in the lines of his preoccupied face. Do you think you'd seen it? he asked, after an appreciable interval. Why, I actually took you for it, my dear, in my mad determination to spot it. Me? Just now? His arm dropped away, and he turned from her with the faint echo of her laugh. Really, dearest, you'd better give it up if that's the best you can do. Oh, yes, I'll give it up. Have you? she asked, turning round on him abruptly. The parlour-maid had entered with letters and the lamp, and the light struck up into Boyne's face as he bent above the tray she presented. Have, have you? Mary perversely insisted when the servant had disappeared on her errand of illumination. Have I what? he rejoined absently, the light bringing out the sharp stamp of worry between his brows as he turned over the letters. Given up her trying to see the ghost? Her heart beat a little at the experiment she was making. Her husband, laying his letters aside, moved away into the shadow of the hearth. I never tried, he said, tearing open the wrapper of a newspaper. Well, of course, Mary persisted, the exasperating thing is that there's no use trying, since one can't be sure until uh, so long afterward. He was unfolding the paper, as if he had hardly heard her, but after a pause, during which the sheets rustled spasmodically between his hands, he looked up to ask, Have you any idea how long? Mary had sunk into a low chair beside the fireplace. From her seat she glanced over, startled, at her husband's profile, which was projected against the circle of the lamplight. No, none. Have you? she retorted, repeating her former phrase with an added stress of intention. Boyne crumpled the paper into a bunch and then, inconsequently, turned back with it towards the lamp. Lord, no, I only meant, he explained with a faint tinge of impatience. Is there any legend, any tradition as to that? Not that I know of, she answered, but the impulse to add, what makes you ask, was checked by the reappearance of the parlour-maid with tea and the second lamp. With the dispersal of shadows and the repetition of the daily domestic office, Mary Boyne felt herself less oppressed by that sense of something mutely imminent which had darkened her afternoon. For a few moments she gave herself to the details of her task, and when she looked up from it she was struck to the point of bewilderment by the change in her husband's face. He had seated himself near the father lamp and was absorbed in the perusal of his letters but was it something he had found in them, or merely the shifting of her own point of view that had restored his features to their normal aspect? The longer she looked, the more definitely the change affirmed itself. The lines of tension had vanished, and such traces of fatigue as lingered were of the kind easily attributable to steady mental effort. He glanced up, as if drawn by her gaze, and met her eyes with a smile. I'm dying for my tea, you know, and here's a letter for you, he said. She took the letter he held out in exchange for the cup she proffered him, and returning to her seat broke the seal with the languid gesture of the reader whose interests are all enclosed in the circle of one cherished presence. 
Her next conscious motion was that of starting to her feet, the letter falling to them as she rose while she held out to her husband a newspaper clipping. Ned, what's this? What does it mean? He had risen at the same instant, almost as if hearing her cry before she uttered it, and for a perceptible space of time he and she studied each other, like adversaries watching for an advantage, across the space between her chair and his desk. What's what? You fairly made me jump, Boyne said at length, moving towards her with a sudden half-exasperated laugh. The shadow of apprehension was on his face again. Not now a look of fixed foreboding, but a shifting vigilance of lips and eyes that gave her the sense of feeling himself invisibly surrounded. Her hand shook so that she could hardly give him the clipping. This article, from the uh, Waukesha Sentinel, that, that a man named Elwell has brought suit against you, that there was something wrong about the Blue Star Mine. I, I can't understand more than half. They continued to face each other as she spoke, and to her astonishment she saw that her words had the almost immediate effect of dissipating the strained watchfulness of his look. Oh, that! He glanced down the printed slip, and then folded it with the gesture of one who handles something harmless and familiar. What is the matter with you this afternoon, Mary? I thought you'd had bad news. She stood before him with her indefinable terror subsiding slowly under the reassurance of his tone. You knew about this, then? It's all right? Certainly I knew about it, and it's all right. But what is it? I don't understand. What does this man accuse you of? Ah, pretty nearly every crime in the calendar, Boyne had tossed the clipping down and thrown himself into an armchair near the fire. Do you want to hear the story? It's not particularly interesting, just a squabble over interests in the Blue Star. But who is this Elwell? I don't know the name. Oh, he's a fellow I put into it, gave him a hand up. I, I told you all about him at the time. Oh, I dare say, I must have forgotten. Vainly she strained back among her memories. But if you helped him, why does he make this return? Probably some shyster lawyer got hold of him and talked him over. It's all rather technical and complicated. I thought that kind of thing bored you. His wife felt a sting of compunction. Theoretically, she deprecated the American wife's detachment from her husband's professional interests. But in practice, she had always found it difficult to fix her attention on Boyne's report of the transactions in which his varied interests involved him. Besides, she had felt during their years of exile that in a community where the amenities of living could be obtained only at the cost of efforts as arduous as her husband's professional labours, such brief leisure as he and she could command, should be used as an escape from immediate preoccupations, a flight to the life they always dreamed of living. Once or twice now that his new life had actually drawn its magic circle about them, she had asked herself if she had done right. But hitherto such conjectures had been no more than the retrospective exertions of active fantasy. Now, for the first time, it startled her a little to find out how little she knew of the material foundation on which her happiness was built. She glanced at her husband and was again reassured by the composure of his face, yet she felt the need of more definite grounds for her reassurance. But doesn't this suit worry you? Why have you never spoken to me about it? He answered both questions at once. I didn't speak of it at first because it did worry me, annoyed me rather but it's all ancient history now. Your correspondent must have got hold of a back number of the Sentinel. 
She felt a quick thrill of relief. You mean it's over? He's lost his case. There was a just perceptible delay in Boyne's reply. The suit's been withdrawn, that's all. But she persisted as if to exonerate herself from the inward charge of being too easily put off. Withdrawn it because he saw he had no chance. Oh, he had no chance, Boyne answered. She was still struggling with a dimly felt perplexity at the back of her thoughts. How long ago was it withdrawn? He paused as if with a slight return of his former uncertainty. I've just had the news now, but I've been expecting it. Just now, in one of your letters? Yes, in one of my letters. She made no answer and was aware only, after a short interval of waiting, that he had risen and, strolling across the room, had placed himself on the sofa at her side. She felt him, as he did so, pass an arm about her. She felt his hand seek hers and clasp it, and turning slowly, drawn by the warmth of his cheek, she met his smiling eyes. It's all right, it's all right, she questioned, through the flood of her dissolving doubts, and I give you my word, it was never righter. He laughed back at her, holding her close. One of the strangest things she was afterwards to recall out of all the next day's strangeness was the sudden and complete recovery of her sense of security. It was in the air when she awoke in her low-sealed, dusky room. It went with her downstairs to the breakfast table, flashed out at her from the fire and reduplicated itself from the flanks of the urn and the sturdy flutings of the Georgian teapot. It was as if, in some roundabout way, all her diffused fears of the previous day, with their moment of sharp concentration about the newspaper article, as if this dim questioning of the future and startled return upon the past had between them liquidated the arrears of some haunting moral obligation. If she had indeed been careless of her husband's affairs, it was, a new state seemed to prove, because her faith in him instinctively justified such carelessness, and his right to her faith had now affirmed itself in the very face of menace and suspicion. She had never seen him more untroubled, more naturally and unconsciously himself, than after the cross-examination to which she had subjected him. It was almost as if he had been aware of her doubts, and had wanted the air cleared as much as she did. It was as clear, thank heaven, as the bright outer light that surprised her almost with a touch of summer when she issued from the house for her daily round of the gardens. She had left Boyne at his desk indulging herself, as she passed the library door, by a last peep at his quiet face, where he bent, pipe in mouth, above his papers, and now she had her own morning's task to perform. The task involved, on such charmed winter days, almost as much happy loitering about the different quarters of her domain, as if spring were already at work there. There were such endless possibilities still before her, such opportunities to bring out the latent graces of the old place, without a single irreverent touch of alteration, that the winter was all too short to plan what spring and autumn executed and her recovered sense of safety gave, on this particular morning, a particular zest to her progress through the sweet, still place. She went first to the kitchen garden, where the espaliered pear trees drew complicated patterns on the walls, and pigeons were fluttering and preening about the silvery-slated roof of their coat. 
There was something wrong about the piping of the hothouse, and she was expecting an authority from Dorchester who was to drive out between trains and make a diagnosis of the boiler. But when she dipped into the damp heat of the greenhouses, among the spiced scents and waxy pinks and reds of old-fashioned exotics, even the floor of Ling was in the note. She learned that the great man had not arrived, and the day being too rare to waste in an artificial atmosphere, she came out again and paced along the springy turf of the bowling green to the gardens behind the house. At their farther end rose a grass terrace, looking across the fish pond and yew hedges to the long house front, with its twisted chimney stacks and blue roof angels, all drenched in the pale gold moisture of the air. Seen thus across the level tracery of the gardens, its centre, from open windows and hospitably smoking chimneys, the look of some warm human presence, of a mind slowly ripened on a sunny wall of experience. She had never before had such a sense of her intimacy with it, such a conviction that its secrets were all beneficent, kept, as they said to children, for one's own good, such a trust in its power to gather up her life and Ned's into the harmonious pattern of the long, long story. It sat there, weaving in the sun. She heard steps behind her and turned, expecting to see the gardener accompanied by the engineer from Dorchester. But only one figure was in sight, that of a youngish, slightly built man, who, for reasons she could not on the spot have given, did not remotely resemble her notion of an authority on hothouse boilers. The newcomer, on seeing her, lifted his hat and paused with the air of a gentleman, perhaps a traveller, who wishes to make it known that his intrusion is involuntary. Ling occasionally attracted the more cultivated traveller, and Mary half expected to see the stranger dissemble a camera or justify his presence by producing it. But he made no gesture of any sort, and after a moment she asked in a tone responding to the courteous hesitation of his attitude, Is there anyone you wish to see? I came to see Mr. Boyne, he answered. His intonation, rather than his accent, was faintly American, and Mary, at the note, looked at him more closely. The brim of his soft felt hat cast a shade on his face, which, thus obscured, wore to her short-sighted gaze a look of seriousness, as of a person arriving on business, and civilly but firmly aware of his rights. Past experience had made her equally sensible to such claims, but she was jealous of her husband's morning hours, and doubtful of his having given anyone the right to intrude upon them. "'Have you an appointment with my husband?' she asked. The visitor hesitated, as if unprepared for the question. "'I think he expects me,' he replied. It was Mary's turn to hesitate. "'You see, this is his time for work. He never sees anyone in the morning.' He looked at her a moment without answering. Then, as if accepting her decision, he began to move away. As he turned, Mary saw him pause and glance up at the peaceful house-front. Something in his air suggested weariness and disappointment, the dejection of the traveller who has come from far off and whose hours are limited by the timetable. It occurred to her that if this were the case, her refusal might have made his errand vain, and a sense of compunction caused her to hasten after him. "'May I ask if you've come a long way?' He gave her the same grave look. "'Yes, I have come a long way.' "'Then, if you go to the house, no doubt my husband will see you. You'll find him in the library.' 
She didn't know why she had added the last phrase, except from a vague impulse to atone for her previous inhospitality. The visitor seemed about to express his thanks, but her attention was distracted by the approach of the gardener with a companion who bore all the marks of being the expert from Dorchester. This way, she said, waving the stranger to the house, and an instant later she had forgotten him in the absorption of her meeting with the boilermaker. The encounter led to such far-reaching results that the engineer ended by finding it expedient to ignore his train, and Mary was beguiled into spending the remainder of the morning in absorbed confabulation among the flower-pots. When the colloquy ended, she was surprised to find that it was nearly luncheon-time, and she half expected, as she hurried back to the house, to see her husband coming out to meet her. But she found no one in the court but an undergardener raking the gravel, and the hall, when she entered it, was so silent that she guessed Boyne to be still at work. Not wishing to disturb him, she turned into the drawing-room, and there, at her writing-table, lost herself in renewed calculations of the outlay to which the morning's conference had pledged her. The fact that she could permit herself such follies had not yet lost its novelty, and somehow, in contrast to the vague fears of the previous days, it now seemed an element of her recovered security, of the sense that, as Ned had said, things in general had never been righter. She was still luxuriating in a lavish play of figures, when the parlour-maid, from the threshold, roused her with an inquiry as to the expediency of serving luncheon. It was one of their jokes that Trimmel announced luncheon as if she were divulging a state secret, and Mary, intent upon her papers, merely murmured an absent-minded assent. She felt Trimmel wavering doubtfully on the threshold, as if in rebuke of such unconsidered assent. Then her retreating steps sounded down the passage, and Mary, pushing away her papers, crossed the hall and went to the library door. It was still closed and she wavered in her turn, disliking to disturb her husband, yet anxious that he should not exceed his usual measure of work. As she stood there, balancing her impulses, Trimmel returned with the announcement of luncheon, and Mary, thus impelled, opened the library door. Boyne was not at his desk, and she peered about her, expecting to discover him before the bookshelves, somewhere down the length of the room, but her call brought no response, and gradually it became clear to her that he was not there. She turned back to the parlour-maid. Mr. Boyne must be upstairs. Please tell him that luncheon is ready. Trimmel appeared to hesitate between the obvious duty of obedience and an equally obvious conviction of the foolishness of the injunction laid on her. The struggle resulted in her saying, If you please, madam, Mr. Boyne's not upstairs. Not in his room, are you sure? I'm sure, madam. Mary consulted the clock. Where is he, then? He's gone out, Trimmel announced, with the superior air of one who has respectfully waited for the question that a well-ordered mind would have put first. Mary's conjecture had been right, then. Boyne must have gone to the gardens to meet her, and since she had missed him, it was clear that he had taken the shorter way by the south door instead of going round to the court. She crossed the hall to the French window opening directly on the yew garden, but the parlour-maid, after another moment of inner conflict, decided to bring out, "'Please, madam, Mr. Boyne didn't go that way.' Mary turned back. "'Where did he go, and when?' "'He went out of the front door, up the drive, madam.' It was a matter of principle with Trimmel never to answer more than one question at a time. "'Up the drive, at this hour?' 
Mary went to the door herself and glanced across the court through the tunnel of bare limes, but its perspective was as empty as when she had scanned it on entering. Did Mr. Boyne leave no message? Trimmel seemed to surrender herself to a last struggle with the forces of chaos. No, madam. He just went out with the gentleman. The, the gentleman? What gentleman? Mary wheeled about as if to front this new factor. The gentleman who called, madam, said Trimmel resignedly. When did the gentleman call? Do explain yourself, Trimmel. Only the fact that Mary was very hungry and that she wanted to consult her husband about the greenhouses would have caused her to lay so unusual an injunction on her attendant. And even now she was detached enough to note in Tremel's eyes the dawning defiance of the respectful subordinate who was being pressed too hard. I couldn't exactly say the hour, madam, because I didn't let the gentleman in, she replied with an air of discreetly ignoring the irregularity of her mistress's course. You, you didn't let him in? No, madam, when the bell rang I was dressing and Agnes— Go and ask Agnes, then, said Mary. Trimmel still wore her look of patient magnanimity. Agne Agnes wouldn't know, madam, for she had unfortunately burned her hand in trimming the wick of the new lamp from town. Trimmel, as Mary was aware, had always been opposed to the new lamp, and so Mrs. Dockett sent the kitchen-maid instead. Mary looked again at the clock. It's after two. Go and ask the kitchen-maid if Mr. Boyne left any word. She went into luncheon without waiting, and Trimmel presently brought to her there the kitchen-maid's statement that the gentleman had called about eleven o'clock, and that Mr. Boyne had gone out with him without leaving any message. The kitchen-maid didn't even know the caller's name, for he had written it on a slip of paper, which he had folded and handed to her, with the injunction to deliver it at once to Mr. Boyne. Mary finished her luncheon still wondering when it was over and Trimmel had brought the coffee to the drawing-room. Her wonder had deepened to at first a faint tinge of disquietude. It was unlike Boyne to absent himself without explanation at so unwonted an hour, and their difficulty of identifying the visitor whose summons he had apparently obeyed made his disappearance the more unaccountable. Mary Boyne's experience as the wife of a busy engineer— subject to sudden calls and compelled to keep irregular hours, had trained her to the philosophic acceptance of surprises. But since Boyne's withdrawal from business, he had adopted a Benedictine regularity of life, as if to make up for the dispersed and agitated years with their stand-up lunches and dinners rattled down to the joltings of the dining-cars. He cultivated the last refinements of punctuality and monotony discouraging his wife's fancy for the unexpected, and declaring that to a delicate taste there were infinite gradations of pleasure in the recurrences of habit. Still, since no life can completely defend itself from the unforeseen, it was evident that all Boyne's precautions would sooner or later prove unavailing, and Mary concluded that he had cut short a tiresome visit by walking with his caller to the station, or at least accompanying him for part of the way. This conclusion relieved her from further preoccupation, and she went out herself to take up her conference with the gardener. Then she walked to the village post-office, a mile or so away, and when she returned towards home, the early twilight was settling in. She had taken a footpath across the downs, and as Boyne, meanwhile, had probably returned from the station by the high road, there was little likelihood of their meeting. She felt sure, however, of his having reached the house before her, so sure that when she entered it herself, without even pausing to inquire of Trimmel, she made directly for the library. But the library was still empty, and with an unwonted exactness of visual memory she observed that the papers on her husband's desk lay precisely 
as they had lain when she had gone in to call him to luncheon. Then, of a sudden, she was seized by a vague dread of the unknown. She had closed the door behind her on entering, and, as she stood alone in the long, silent room, her dread seemed to take shape and sound, to be there breathing and lurking among the shadows. Her short-sighted eyes strained through them, half discerning an actual presence, something aloof, that watched and knew. And in the recoil from that intangible presence, she threw herself on the bell rope and gave it a sharp pull. The sharp summons brought Trimmel in precipitately with a lamp, and Mary breathed again at this sobering reappearance of the usual. You may bring tea if Mr. Boyne is in, she said to justify her ring. Very well, madam, but Mr. Boyne is not in, said Trimmel, putting down the lamp. Not in? Uh, you mean he's come back and gone out again? No, madam, he's never been back. The dread stirred again, and Mary knew that now it had her fast. Not since he went out with the gentleman. Not since he went out with the gentleman. But who was the gentleman? Mary insisted with the shrill note of someone trying to be heard through a confusion of noises. That I couldn't say, madam. Trimmel, standing there by the lamp, seemed suddenly to grow less round and rosy, as though eclipsed by the same creeping shade of apprehension. But the kitchenmaid knows. Or wasn't it the kitchenmaid who let him in? She doesn't know either, madam, for he wrote his name on a folded paper. Mary, through her agitation, was aware that they were both designating the unknown visitor by a vague pronoun, instead of the conventional formula which till then had kept their illusions within the bounds of conformity. And at the same moment her mind caught at the suggestion of the folded paper. But he must have a name. Where's the paper? She moved to the desk and began to turn over the documents that littered it. The first that caught her eyes was an unfinished letter in her husband's hand, with his pen lying across it, as though dropped there at a sudden summons. My dear Parvis, who was Parvis? I have just received your letter announcing Elwell's death, and while I suppose there is now no further risk of trouble, it might be safer. She tossed the sheet aside and continued her search, but no folded paper was discoverable among the letters and pages of manuscript which had been swept together in a heap as if by a hurried or startled gesture. But the kitchenmaid saw him. Send her here, she commanded, wondering at her dullness in not thinking sooner of so simple a solution. Trimmel vanished in a flash, as if thankful to be out of the room, and when she reappeared, conducting the agitated underling, Mary had regained her self-possession and had her questions ready. The gentleman was a stranger. Yes, that she understood. But what had he said? And above all, what had he looked like? The first question was easily enough answered, for the disconcerting reason that he had said so little, had merely asked for Mr. Boyne, and scribbling something on a bit of paper, had requested that it should at once be carried into him. Then you don't know what he wrote. You're not sure it was his name. The kitchenmaid was not sure, but supposed it was, since he had written it in answer to her inquiries to whom she should announce. And when you carried the paper in to Mr. Boyne, what did he say? The kitchenmaid did not think that Mr. Boyne had said anything, but she couldn't be sure, for just as she had handed him the paper and he was opening it, she had become aware that the visitor had followed her into the library, and she had slipped out, leaving the two gentlemen together. But then, if you left them in the library, how do you know that they went out of the house? The question plunged the witness into a momentary inarticulateness, from which she was rescued by Trimmel, who, by means of ingenious circumlocutions, elicited the statement 
that before she could cross the hall to the back passage, she had heard the two gentlemen behind her and had seen them go out of the front door together. Then, if you saw the strange gentleman twice, you must be able to tell me what he looked like. But with this final challenge to her powers of expression, it became clear that the limit of the kitchen maid's endurance had been reached. The obligation of going to the front door to show in a visitor was in itself so subversive of the fundamental order of things that it had thrown her faculties into hopeless disarray, and she could only stammer out, after various panting efforts, His hat, Mum, was different-like, as you might say. Different? How different? Mary flashed out, her own mind in the same instant, leaping back to an image left on it that morning, and then lost under layers of subsequent impressions. He sat, had a wide brim, you mean, and his face was pale? A youngish face? Mary pressed her with a white-lipped intensity of interrogation. But if the kitchenmaid found any adequate answer to this challenge, it was swept away for her listener down the rushing current of her own convictions. The stranger. The stranger in the garden. Why had not Mary thought of him before? She needed no one now to tell her that it was he who had called for her husband and gone away with him. But who was he, and why had Boyne obeyed him? It leaped out at her suddenly like a grin out of the dark that they had often called England so little, such a confoundedly hard place to get lost in. Confoundedly hard place to get lost in. That had been her husband's phrase. And now, with the whole machinery of official investigation sweeping its flashlights from shore to shore, and across the dividing straits, now, with Boyne's name blazing from the walls of every town and village, his portrait, how that wrung her, hawked up and down the country like the image of a hunted criminal, now the little, compact, populous island, so policed, surveyed and administered, revealed itself as a sphinx-like guardian of abysmal mysteries, staring back into his wife's anguished eyes, as if with the wicked joy of knowing something they would never know. In the fortnight since Boyne's disappearance, there had been no word of him, no trace of his movements. Even the usual misleading reports that raise expectancy in tortured bosoms had been few and fleeting. No one but the kitchen maid had seen Boyne leave the house, and no one else had seen the gentleman who accompanied him. All inquiries in the neighbourhood failed to elicit the memory of a stranger's presence that day in the neighbourhood of Ling, and no one had met Edward Boyne, either alone or in company, in any of the neighbouring villages, or on the road across the downs, or at either of the two local railway stations. The sunny English noon had swallowed him as completely as if he had gone out into Cimmerian night. Mary, while every official means of investigation was working at its highest pressure, had ransacked her husband's papers for any trace of antecedent complications, of entanglements or obligations unknown to her that might throw a ray into the darkness. But if any such had existed in the background of Boyne's life, they had vanished like the slip of paper on which the visitor had written his name. There remained no possible thread of guidance except if it were indeed an exception, the letter which Boyne had apparently been in the act of writing when he received his mysterious summons. The letter, read and re-read by his wife and submitted by her to the police, yielded little enough to feed conjecture. 
I have just heard of Elwell's death, and while I suppose there is now no further risk of trouble, it might be safer. That was all. The risk of trouble was easily explained by the newspaper clipping which had apprised Mary of the suit bought against her husband by one of his associates in the Blue Star Enterprise. The only new information conveyed by the letter was the fact of its showing Boyne, when he wrote it, to be still apprehensive of the results of the suit, though he had told his wife that it had been withdrawn, and though the letter itself proved that the plaintiff was dead. It took several days of cabling to fix the identity of the parvis to whom the fragment was addressed, but even after these inquiries had shown him to be a Waukesha lawyer, no new facts concerning the Elwell suit were elicited. He appeared to have had no direct concern in it, but to have been conversant with the facts merely as an acquaintance and possible intermediary, and he declared himself unable to guess with what object Boyne intended to seek his assistance. This negative information, sole fruit of the first fortnight's search, was not increased by a jot during the slow weeks that followed. Mary knew that the investigations were still being carried on, but she had a vague sense of their gradually slackening, as the actual march of time seemed to slacken. It was as though the days fleeing horror-struck from the shrouded image of the one inscrutable day gained assurance as the distance lengthened, till at last they fell back into their normal gait, and so with the human imaginations at work on the dark event. No doubt it occupied them still, but week by week and hour by hour it grew less absorbing took up less space, was slowly but inevitably crowded out of the foreground of consciousness by the new problems perpetually bubbling up from the cloudy cauldron of human experience. Even Mary Boyne's consciousness gradually felt the same lowering of velocity. It still swayed with the incessant oscillations of conjecture, but they were slower, more rhythmical in their beat. There were even moments of weariness when, like the victim of some poison which leaves the brain clear, but holds the body motionless, she saw herself domesticated with the horror, accepting its perpetual presence as one of the fixed conditions of life. These moments lengthened into hours and days, till she passed into a phase of stolid acquiescence. She watched the routine of daily life with the incurious eye of a savage on whom the meaningless processes of civilization make but the faintest impression. She had come to regard herself as part of the routine, a spoke of the wheel revolving with its motion. She felt almost like the furniture of the room in which she sat, an insensate object to be dusted and pushed about with the chairs and tables. And this deepening apathy held her fast at Ling, in spite of the entreaties of friends and the usual medical recommendations of change. A friend supposed that her refusal to move was inspired by the belief that her husband would one day return to the spot from which he had vanished, and a beautiful legend grew up about this imaginary state of waiting. But in reality, she had no such belief. The depths of anguish enclosing her were no longer lighted by flashes of hope. She was sure that Boyne would never come back, that he had gone out of her sight as completely as if death itself had waited that day on the threshold. She had even renounced, one by one, the various theories as to his disappearance which had been advanced by the press, the police, and her own agonised imagination. In sheer lassitude her mind turned from these alternatives of horror 
and sank back into the blank fact that he was gone. No, she would never know what had become of him. No one would ever know. But the house knew. The library in which she spent her long, lonely evenings knew. For it was here that the last scene had been enacted, here that the stranger had come and spoken the word which had caused Boyne to rise and follow him. The floor she trod had felt his tread, the books on the shelves had seen his face, and there were moments when the intense consciousness of the old, dusky walls seemed about to break out into some audible revelation of their secret. But the revelation never came, and she knew it would never come. Ling was not one of the garrulous old houses that betray the secrets men trusted to them. Its very legend proved that it had always been the mute accomplice, the incorruptible custodian of the mysteries it had surprised. And Mary Boyne, sitting face to face with its silence, felt the futility of seeking to break it by any human means. I don't say it wasn't straight, and yet I don't say it was straight. It was business. Mary, at the words, lifted her head with a start and looked intently at the speaker. When half an hour before a card with Mr. Parvis on it had been brought up to her, she had been immediately aware that the name had been part of her consciousness ever since she had read it at the head of Boyne's unfinished letter. In the library she had found awaiting her a small, sallow man with a bald head and gold eyeglasses, and it sent a tremor through her to know that this was the person to whom her husband's last known thought had been directed. Parvis, civilly, but without vain preamble, in the manner of a man who has his watch in his hand, had set forth the object of his visit. He had run over to England on business, and finding himself in the neighbourhood of Dorchester, had not wished to leave it without paying his respects to Mrs. Boyne, and without asking her, if the occasion offered, what she meant to do about Bob Elwell's family. The words touched the spring of some obscure dread in Mary's bosom. Did her visitor, after all, know what Boyne had meant by his unfinished phrase? She asked for an elucidation of his question, and noticed at once that he seemed surprised at her continued ignorance of the subject. Was it possible that she really knew as little as she said? I know nothing. You just tell me, she faltered out, and her visitor thereupon proceeded to unfold his story. It threw, even to her confused perceptions and imperfectly initiated vision, a lurid glare on the whole hazy episode of the Blue Star Mine. Her husband had made his money in the brilliant speculation at the cost of getting ahead of someone less alert to seize the chance, and the victim of this ingenuity was young Robert Elwell, who had put him on to the Blue Star scheme. Parvis, at Mary's first cry, had thrown her a sobering glance through his impartial glasses. Bob Elwell wasn't smart enough, that's all. If he had been, he might have turned round and served Boy in the same way. It's the kind of thing that happens every day in business. I guess it's what the scientists call the survival of the fittest, see? said Mr. Parvis, evidently well pleased at the aptness of his analogy. Mary felt a physical shrinking from the next question she tried to frame. It was as though the words on her lips had a taste that nauseated her. But then, you accuse my husband of doing something dishonourable. Mr. Parvis surveyed the question dispassionately. Oh, no, I don't. I don't even say it wasn't straight. He glanced up and down the long lines of books as if one of them might have supplied him with the definition he sought. 
I don't say it wasn't straight, and yet I don't say it was straight. It was business. After all, no definition in his category could be more comprehensive than that. Mary sat staring at him with a look of terror. He seemed to her like the indifferent emissary of some evil power. But Mr. Elwell's lawyers apparently didn't take your view, since, I suppose, the suite was withdrawn by their advice. Oh, yes, they knew he hadn't a leg to stand on, technically. It was when they advised him to withdraw the suit that he got desperate. You see, he'd borrowed most of the money he lost in the Blue Star, and he was up a tree. That's why he shot himself when they told him he had no show. The horror was sweeping over Mary in a great deafening wave. He shot himself. He killed himself because of that. Well, he didn't kill himself exactly. He dragged on two months before he died. Parvis emitted the statement as unemotionally as a gramophone grinding out its record. You mean that he tried to kill himself and failed? And tried again? Ah, oh, he didn't have to try again, said Parvis grimly. They sat opposite each other in silence, he swinging his eyeglasses thoughtfully about his finger, she motionless, her arms stretched along her knees in an attitude of rigid tension. But if you knew all this, she began at length, hardly able to force her voice above a whisper, how is it that when I wrote you at the time of my husband's disappearance, you said you didn't understand his letter? Parvis received this without perceptible embarrassment. Why, I didn't understand it, strictly speaking, and it wasn't the time to talk about it if I had. The Elwell business was settled when the suit was withdrawn. Nothing I could have told you would have helped you find your husband. Mary continued to scrutinise him. Then why are you telling me now? Still Parvis didn't hesitate. Well, to begin with, I supposed you knew more than you appear to. I mean, about the circumstances of Elwell's death. And then people are talking of it now. The whole matter's been raked up again. And I thought, if you didn't know, you ought to. She remained silent, and he continued. You see, it's only come out lately what a bad state Elwell's affairs were in. His wife's a proud woman, and she fought on as long as she could, going out to work and taking sewing at home when she got too sick. Something with a heart, I believe. But she had his mother to look after, and the children, and she broke down under it and finally had to ask for help. That called attention to the case, and the papers took it up, and a subscription was started. Everybody out there liked Bob Elwell, and most of the prominent names in the place are down on the list, and people began to wonder why. Parvis broke off to fumble in an inner pocket. Here, he continued, here's an account of the whole thing from the Sentinel, a little sensational, of course, but I guess you'd better look it over. He held out a newspaper to Mary who unfolded it slowly, remembering as she did so the evening when in the same room the perusal of a clipping from the Sentinel had first shaken the depths of her security. As she opened the paper, her eyes shrinking from the glaring headlines, Widow of Boyne's victim forced to appeal for aid, ran down the column of text to two portraits inserted in it. The first was her husband's taken from a photograph made the year they had come to England. It was the picture of him she liked the best, the one that stood on the writing table upstairs in her bedroom. As the eyes in the photograph met hers, she felt it would be impossible to read what was said of him, and closed her lids with the sharpness of the pain. I thought if you felt disposed to put your name down, she heard Parvis continue. She opened her eyes with an effort. They fell on the other portrait. It was that of a youngish man, slightly built, with features somewhat blurred by the shadow of a projecting hat-brim. Where had she seen that outline before? 
She stared at it confusedly, her heart hammering in her ears. Then she gave a cry. This is the man, the man who came for my husband. She heard Parvis start to his feet and was dimly aware that she had slipped backward into the corner of the sofa, that he was bending over her in alarm. She straightened herself and reached out for the paper which she had dropped. It's the man, I should know him anywhere, she persisted in a voice that sounded to her own ears like a scream. Parvis's answer seemed to come to her from far off, down endless fog-muffled windings. Mrs. Boyne, you're not very well. Shall I call someone? Shall I get a glass of water? No, no, no! She threw herself towards him, her hand frantically clutching the newspaper. I tell you, it's the man. I know him. He spoke to me in the garden. Parvis took the journal from her, directing his glasses to the portrait. It, it can't be Mrs. Boyne. It's Robert Elwell. Robert Elwell! Her white stare seemed to travel into space. Then it was Robert Elwell who came for him. Came for Boyne. The day he went away from here. Parvis's voice dropped as hers rose. He bent over, laying a fraternal hand on her, as if to coax her gently back into her seat. Why? Elwell was dead, don't you remember? Mary sat with her eyes fixed on the picture, unconscious of what he was saying. Don't you remember Boyne's unfinished letter to me, the one you found on his desk that day? It was written just after he'd heard of Elwell's death. She noticed an odd shake in Parvis's unemotional voice. Surely you remember, he urged her. Yes, she remembered. That was the profoundest horror of it. Elwell had died the day before her husband's disappearance, and this was Elwell's portrait, and it was the portrait of the man who had spoken to her in the garden. She lifted her head and looked slowly about the library. The library could have borne witness that it was also the portrait of the man who had come in that day to call Boyne from his unfinished letter. Through the misty surgings of her brain, she heard the faint boom of half-forgotten words, words spoken by a leader stare on the lawn of Pangbourne before Boyne and his wife had ever seen the house at Ling, or had imagined that they might one day live there. This was the man who spoke to me, she repeated. She looked again at Parvis. He was trying to conceal his disturbance under what he probably imagined to be an expression of indulgent commiseration, but the edges of his lips were blue. He thinks me mad. But I'm not mad, she reflected, and suddenly there flashed upon her a way of justifying her strange affirmation. She sat quiet, controlling the quiver of her lips, and waiting till she could trust her voice. Then she said, looking straight at Parvis, Will you answer me one question, please? When was it that Robert Elwell tried to kill himself? What? When? Parvis stammered. Yes, the date. Please try to remember. She saw that he was growing still more afraid of her. I have a reason, she insisted. Yes, yes, only I can't remember. About two months before, I should say. I want the date, she repeated. Parvis picked up the newspaper. We might see here, he said, still humouring her. He ran his eyes down the page. Here it is. Last October the... She caught the words from him. The twentieth, wasn't it? With a sharp look at her, he verified, yes, the twentieth. Then you did know. I know now. Her gaze continued to travel past him. Sunday, twentieth. That was the day he came first. Parvis's voice was almost inaudible. Came here first. Yes. 
You saw him twice, then? Yes, twice. She just breathed at him. He came first on the 20th of October. I remember the date because it was the day we went up Meldon Steep for the first time. She felt a faint gasp of inward laughter at the thought that but for that she might have forgotten. Parvis continued to scrutinise her as if trying to intercept her gaze. We saw him from the roof, she went on. He came down the lime avenue towards the house. He was dressed just as he is in that picture. My husband saw him first. He was frightened and ran down ahead of me. But there was no one there. He had vanished. Elwell had vanished, Parvis faltered. Yes. The two whispers seemed to grope for each other. I couldn't think what had happened. I see now. He tried to come then. But he wasn't dead enough. He couldn't reach us. He had to wait for two months to die. And then he came back again. And Ned went with him. She nodded at Parvis with the look of triumph of a child who has worked out a difficult puzzle, but suddenly she lifted her hands with a desperate gesture, pressing them to her temples. Oh, my God, I sent him to Ned. I told him where to go. I sent him to this room, she screamed. She felt the walls of books rush towards her like inward falling ruins, and she heard Parvis a long way off through the ruins crying to her and struggling to get at her. But she was numb to his touch. She didn't know what he was saying. Through the tumult she heard but one clear note, the voice of a leader stare speaking on the lawn at Pangbourne. You won't know till afterward, it said. You won't know till long, long afterward. So that was um, Afterward by Edith Wharton. Now, if she'd been English, she would have said afterwards, because one of the things, when you read a lot of books, you notice that um, there are certain things like the two L's in travelling, two L's in English or British English, and one L in American English. And also, British English people say afterwards and forwards, where Americans tend to say afterward and forward. Uh, Who's to correct? I don't know. Just a usage. Anyway, that's a slight digression. So, um, funnily enough, we had the book club, the um, Classic Ghost Stories podcast book club, which occurs as a voice chat on the Discord server. Um, and if you look on, I think it's on the YouTube channel, the um, in the community tab, there is the, the Discord link. So come along. Uh, anyway, it was, I said I was going to do this one today. And they and <laughs> turned out the people had not liked the pomegranate seed by Edith Wharton, which I did, which I actually really, really liked. And of course, the other one we've done by Edith Wharton is um, Mr. Jones. So, mm, and and there there is a similarity in these stories. Anyway, if you, for those of you who don't know, and you know, we might as well say something about um, Edith Wharton. So, born eighteen sixty two, died in nineteen thirty seven, was an American author and designer best known for her novels and short stories set among the upper classes of New York society in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Born into a wealthy and prominent family, Wharton was well educated and travelled widely in Europe, which provided her with the background and experiences that would inform her writing. So she began her writing career in the 1890s, publishing short stories and essays in magazines. 1905, she uh, published her first novel, The House of Mirth, 
which was a critical commercial success. She's very famous for Ethan Frome and The Age of Innocence, of course. I really liked that film uh, in the 80s with Michelle Pfeiffer, possibly because Michelle Pfeiffer was just dazzling to me when I was a young man. Anyway. Wharton's work is known for its exploration of the social and moral issues of her time, particularly the role of women in society, the nature of marriage and the impact of wealth and status. So we've certainly got all of that, you know. So uh, Wharton was also active in various social and philanthropic causes and continued to write and travel even in her later years. She was the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 1921 and was awarded a National Book Award in 1930. She died in 1937 at the age of 75. Now, she lived in England for several years. She spent a significant time in London. She bought a house in London. I won't give you all the details. Lived there for a bit in the West End. She had a country home as well in Kent called Land's End. She was married to um, uh, Edward Wharton, um, and he was working on a book on architecture. But their relationship, she also lived in France a lot, and her uh, relationship went down the pan. She was a friend of Henry James and George Bernard Shaw, a number of her novels and short stories are set in England. Now, obviously, I chose to do this in... Um, this book club is very enlightening, actually, because um, y- you get the truth. And so I said, well, I'm doing it. It's, a, it's obviously by an American author, but I'm not going to do it in an American accent. And one of the people I went to, yeah, please don't do it in an American accent. So I went, mm, OK. I wasn't going to, but yeah, point taken. So even though they are American, they sound like uh, upper-class English people. Well, I don't know if they do. That's what I was aiming for anyway. Um, so the story itself published in 1910 it it clearly has resonances with her other stories what's it about well what we find is when we look at stories we each find something different in them and it tends to resonate with what we bring to the story very much I mean there's a common theme We, we all know it's about you know the Boyne family Mary Boyne and her husband Edward interestingly and um, they've come into money due to some speculation with uh, this mine back in the Midwest of the USA. And it, at first, it seems that they have just been really lucky, everything they've ever wanted. It's like people now, you know, working and hoping just to have the dream life, which involves doing not much, isn't it, really? That's a dream life. You don't have to go to work. You don't have to answer to anybody's call anymore. And they And they have this romantic draw to this old house in Dorset. We would tend to say Dorset rather than Dorsetshire, but, I mean, in those days, I know I was reading something else about Somersetshire, Somersetshire. So, um, you know, in those days, they tended to append Shire to the end of it, but a lot of these, some still do, Leicestershire, Nottinghamshire, Yorkshire, Lancashire, probably the bulk of them, but um, others don't. Kent, you don't hear Kentshire or Middlesexshire, or, and Dorset's usually just Dorset, same as Devon's Devon, but you can have Devonshire and Somersetshire. Anyway, again, what's that to do with anything? So, um, yeah, it's got no electric, no hot, water, no, no hot water pipes, and I think I also know for reading a lot of these stories that these grand houses, before they had, um, they had an early form of central heating, which was to have hot water pipes, not necessarily radiators running down the corridors, and I think this house lacked them. However, it is, so the first part's very much the house beautiful. And in the structure of the story, she's, you know, you can't fault her, can you? She sets up the ghost and, and she begins and ends with the same phrase, you know, or the same group of phrases. You won't know till afterwards. It's the first thing that's said. It's the last thing that's said. That symmetry feels nice. 
and it's a nice thing for a writer to do. Um, movies do this as well. They, the, the, um, the first image and the last image very often reflect each other. They're mirrors of each other. They're re replicas of each other. Although the, the second one is the first one changed slightly. So and this is what we see in the story. So it's a symmetrical device to make the story feel pleasing in its structure. It, we know it's begun and ended. Anyway, um, so they're living this dream life in this old house and they're drawn to it because of its kind of quaintness. It is part then of the house beautiful genre. So the, very much there, there are stories that celebrate and there are lots of stories in this genre that celebrate. I mean, her story, uh, Mr. Jones, that we did, uh, we've, done, we've done four of hers now, Bewitched Mr. Jones, The Pomegranate Seed, and now this afterward. Um, that's all. There may be others, but I can't think of any others. Um, all pretty different, but Mr. Jones, of course, is where this English heiress inherits this crumbling old house in the countryside. And there is this uh, servant, Mr. Jones. I won't give any spoilers, but... In the same way, the ghost is always really subtle. And in this, it's a bit like Henry James's ghost stories, who she knew. The idea wasn't to hit you on the head with the ghost. It was to kind of just let the ghost intrude itself uneasily into, your, into, into the background, into the atmosphere of the story. So they make a joke of the ghost at first, and then it turns out the ghost is really serious, and that's another lovely thing, you know. Let's joke, 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 and the irony is it ain't no joke, you know. In the end, it is his end. Mm -hmm. In the end, it is his end. So that's another nice thing, how she writes the story. Um, in many ways, I thought that you could have... There were two stories. There was the ghost story of the house, which is the house beautiful, which is haunted. And then there's the story of his, um, his uh, double dealings with the mine and they, him getting his comeuppance. So that part is a pretty standard revenge ghost story whereby the ghost of someone who is wronged comes back and seeks revenge. And so that's a fairly standard one. That could have happened without them going to the house. They could have still been in the USA. And in that, it struck me. It felt like an Ambrose Bierce story. Um, you know, classic American writer slightly before her uh, in, in generation-wise. Well, probably a generation, maybe a generation and a half before Edith Wharton. If I got my numbers right and my years right. But, you know, that's a very kind of Ambrose Bierce type story, it seems to me. And she's bound to be influenced by him because he was a great a ghost story or um, supernatural story writer of, of, you know, American literature. So she's bound to have been influenced by him, I think. So, yeah, and then the two are married together. Now, I, they feel the house ghost, the, the, she makes play of the house that has memories. The house is, she personifies the house. And in that, this is classic Go, um, you know, think of the haunting of Hill House. Thinking of think of Shirley, um, who was Shirley Jackson, obviously. Think we've done another of Shirley Jackson's a visit, another sentient house. And in many many stories, the house has a personality and has is watchful. Um, it reminds me of also of Rudyard Kipling's Full Circle, which we've done. It's another of the house beautiful. So we have and uh, no, they sorry, Rudyard Kipling. It's John Buchan's Full Circle. Um, I did them both about the same time. I was doing a series of House Beautiful stories, and there are, there, there are houses with personalities. Um, you know, go, go and listen to those. They're both really good. So now I'm trying to see why it was necessary. And there's something about memory and the past, maybe. The house remembers. 
the house is a witness. So the house is a witness to misdeeds as well. So the house knows, has seen him writing his letters when, he's, when his wife didn't know. But the house was aware of him sitting in the library because it was inside the house. Maybe, maybe. I'm maybe pushing it a bit there. Um, did the house help the revenge? It's kind of macabre that he first appears when he's shot himself and he's on the edge of death and he gets he survives that and it takes him another two months to die, which is rather gruesome detail. And then when he finally um, he finally is released from his body, he can enter the death world properly. I want to say something about the death world. When I was talking about the pomegranate seed, if you listen to me go on about that, one of the, I mean people clearly don't like this, but I do. There's this sense of in some of Wharton's um, stories. That the the world of the dead, this utterly strange, unsettling, luminous presence which can intrude into ordinary life, and we have like it, the husband in the pomegranate seed, people are lured off into the world, the living are lured into the world of the dead, and a thought that just comes to me there is how this is of course what the fairies do as well, and in some um, traditions the fairies are the dead you know um the fairies live in the world of the dead so there is a contamination if we're talking about in or you know jungian terms as as i would um the the things that are in the unconscious are contaminated with each other they're not realized it's only when things become conscious that they become differentiated when they're in the unconscious they are not differentiated and the contents of the unconscious which lurk outside our um Day, day seeing, if you like, um, they contaminate each other, they interpenetrate each other. So the world of the fairies and the world of the dead are both kind of uh, symbols, representations of the unconscious and the spirits of the unconscious. Because, of course, the other theory, the you know, archetypal theory, is that these um, these creatures that live in our unconscious have personalities. So they're not, they're not just like paintings or um, images in a computer game or on a movie screen. They actually have personalities and they're lurking in our unconscious. So as you're walking around, you have people living inside you. That's a kind of scary thing, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I may put that in a story, but it's, it's... I mean, that's the theory that these... And, and funnily enough, when people have um, brain injury... If they have the if the corpus callosum gets completely severed, and the two parts of the brain both become conscious, but they're separate people. And there's experiments. It's fantastic stuff. The man who mistook his wife his wife for a hat, um, and there's other other books about um, neuro um, injuries, neurological injuries that result in separate personalities in a, in one body. And these two personalities are not necessarily in agreement with each other. So. That is a slight digression, but but what we're saying is that the world of the dead contains people um, and the world of the dead and the fairies who come to lure you off into their world um, are in some sense similar, if not identical, certainly cross-contaminated, and um, they they have an allure and a glamour, of course. You know, we all know that there's a great temptation to go off into this. It thought Freud would have called this the thanatos urge the death urge you know he, freud 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 had a theory 
that um, part of us wants to die as much as it wants to live. We have a very strong survival um, drive, but he also reckoned in people there was a death drive as well. I'm not sure I agree with that, but then who am I to say? But that would, in a sense, um, kind of suggest why these people go off with the dead in Wharton's stories and go off with the fairies in, in other stories. You know, There is a glamour and an allure and a gravity that pulls people into this world the underworld, the underworld, that's what it is. Um, so I think on the bones of it, it is, um, it is a fairly standard ghost revenge story. Man does terrible thing, and he's punished for it. Um, it also has House Beautiful in it. There is also a possibly independent... I, th- I do see that, that it feels like these are two stories. There's the revenge ghost and there's the house, the house memory, the house personified. They seem to be not, not dependent on each other unless I'm missing something. But then it, they fit okay together. She's welded them together really nicely. But I don't think one needs the other. We could have had a story in that house that didn't include this. And we could have had the revenge story that didn't include the house. But, um, and the other thing, of course, is um, her characters are sort of... They, they have a resigned, stoical despair, don't they? These terrible things happen as if fate. And they just, in this case, old Mary, she just suffers it. She just sits resignedly while the whole thing unfolds. And she, and, it, and she kind of is resigned with a sense of helplessness to the doom of the situation. You know, she doesn't believe anybody. So she knows he's not going to come back. She doesn't know why. She knows very little about it, but she knows the die is cast and he won't come back. So there's this resignation in her which some people won't like, you know. I know some people listening to this will really hate this. And apparently some people, when they listen to it, shout at the stories, which I thought was actually an accolade, you know, because um, saying the word accolade, I mean, she stuffs it with lots of, but that's very Victorian, isn't it? You know, going to stuff as many obscure words in as I can. Whereas these days, writers are enjoined, there's another one, to use um, plain language, whereas not so in the Victorians. The more words you knew, the better you enjoyed it. Uh, and more obscure words. Um, there is a, a moral subtlety to it, a more moral. So, you know, we have a bog standard revenge story. We have the house beautiful, blah blah blah. We have the world of the dead, etc. But but morally, we have this woman's dreams are built upon a swindle, and she uh, doesn't know, but she doesn't want to know. You know. Because her dreams, but look at the time she spends in the garden with a hothouse and it doesn't work. And she's planning all the garden out and she's got the, all her servants and she's a bit sharp with them sometimes. She's the lady of the manor living in this wonderful old house. Her dreams have come true. She was in, you know, had not such a nice life in a pokey house in the Midwest when he was rushing off on mining work and things like that. And she just had to kind of put up with it and she didn't enjoy that life. And here she is. So who looks a gift horse in the mouth? And I suppose this is this is a point that Wharton's making is how many of us then question our fortune and give it back if we find it is founded upon an injustice? So, you know, those people whose wealth was founded on slave owning, for example. Yeah, it's a heck of a thing for them to say, do you know what, this is an injustice and... I'm going to give all my money back to the people it belongs to. Mm, it's a big call, isn't it? I'm not sure many people actually do that. 
I don't think, and even when you get to think people, I'm not saying Bill Gates is, <laughs> people, a lot of people don't like Bill Gates and believe all sorts of things about him trying to depopulate the world. But um, I have patients who believe that. And I'm not saying it's true. I'm not saying it's not true. I don't, I actually probably don't think it's true, I think. I haven't looked too much into it. Or Zuckerberg or people like this, you know, they're going to go, oh, I'm going to give $8 billion to charity. Yeah, but you're going to keep $4 billion. You know, it's not like you're going to be living hand to mouth on wondering whether you can put your fire on or whether you're going to have to buy supermarket saver brand of baked beans and um, bread. So, and I'm, listen, I'm not saying I would be big enough to do it either. Um, but but one would hope that if one found one's good fortune was um, built on the backs of other people's misfortune, that you that you would say, yeah, no, no, this isn't right, you know, because it's better to be just than rich. Discuss. Yeah, I think it is probably. Anyway, so I like the story. Um, in terms of me ramblings. Um, I'm thinking of moving GP surgeries because I'm moving a little bit closer. Maybe I put my CV into one. I only do two days. The, the, this, the podcast, thank you very much. So first of all, thank you to all the patrons who've signed up recently. Thank you to all the people who've become YouTube members. Now, remember, they're two separate things. And I'm just like, well, yeah, this works, this works. YouTube can, can understand what you're saying, so you've got to be careful. But YouTube takes 30%. I think. Um, Substack takes 10% and Patreon takes less than that. So Patreon takes less than that. This is just me stating facts, okay? But you can support the podcast, and many do in lots of ways, uh, Patreon or YouTube membership or sign up through Apple to the podcast. Apple, Apple's okay. Apple's okay um, in terms of the, the cut they take. Uh, and so, you know, um, I appreciate everybody who supports me in those ways. So that's a big thank you to them. Uh, and you, you know, if you're a member and a supporter, you can come along to our Discord and tell me what's wrong with. <laughs> no. Don't do an American accent. I'm, I'm not. I mean, I think that's right. Actually, I'm totally with you on that one. Um, what else do I need to say? Oh yeah, thank you. I've said thank you. Call to action. Share. Spread the word is the thing. If you know somebody that you think might like this podcast. Spread the word. That's that's the call to action today. Thanks very much for everything. Thanks for your help and support. Um, I was talking to. I went out on Wednesday night with my mate Ben, and we sat in the lifeboat pub. And I said to him, "Listen, I don't want to have too many beers tonight because I'm at work tomorrow." And he said, "No, that's fine." He said he's got his university day tomorrow. They're making him do a another degree in pro. He's already got a degree, but they want him to do another one in project management or something. So he had a university today, which the next day, which meant he didn't have to get up. And so um, we chewed the cud talking about stories and things, and we were thinking about, I would really, he's, he's an actor, you know, and I would really like to get him involved in doing something. But I'm, I'm, after discussion with people on this channel, I think this, this channel here is, is my voice. And although it is, um, it means that basically I've, I've got to do all the work, basically. And that's fine because I like it, but, you know, but it would be nice if I could have a spell off um, and give the hand the reins over to somebody else to say, listen, I'm, I'm off on holiday for two weeks. Will you do it? Um, so we might do a separate one. Remember, I keep trying these things. And some my Haunted Places um, uh, blog stroke 
channel's doing okay. It is, it's doing okay. It's much slower than this, but I enjoy doing it because what we do there is I look at a historical ghost story. And then I, then I try to do a bit of detective work through my powerful internet resources and try to find out a bit more about it. And these days with ancestry and old maps, and all, you can find a lot about things and people. Um, and old books that are available through Gutenberg and Google Books and all this kind of stuff. So I, I enjoy doing those. Um, and it, and it, it trundles along. I, I do them on a Tuesday, and I really enjoy doing it. Um, whether it's sustainable in the long run, I don't know. But I'd thought with Ben and potentially other voices, because I know some other people with great voices, we could, we could take turns. And uh, so uh, there's... Um, there's Nancy as well, from, uh, who's American, but she's living in Switzerland. And I thought it would be nice to have a, an American voice and a female voice as well. So a bit of diversity, not necessarily for political reasons, but just because different voices sound nice, you know. Um, I, would, I, I would like Damon Allens to do some of them, but he's, his career has taken off, and so I probably can't afford him now. But anyway, um, he did, he did my, if you listen to one of the Arkham interlude things, he does the voice on that of the American gumshoe, and he's got such a great voice. But, um, yeah, as I say, he's, he's very professional now. Um, that's about it, probably. So share the word. Enjoy yourselves. It's very windy and rainy and cold here. So for those of you who've got a bit of sunshine, I'm a bit envious. Okay. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies.